Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. Global warming is global. Climate change will get solved in China, India, Africa, primarily, perhaps Latin America too. And they'll get solved if those countries stop reducing the ability of the natural world to absorb carbon, to put it bluntly, stop cutting down the rainforests, uh, but there are many other things to go with it too, and they decarbonise their activities, including their carbon exports. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to the latest episode of Energy Unplugged. I'm Richard Howard, the Research Director at Aurora Energy Research. In this episode, I'm joined by Professor Dieter Helm, who uh, in this forum barely needs any introduction at all, but just for completeness, and Dieter's the Professor of Economic Policy at the University of Oxford, uh, was the founder of Aurora Energy, although it's important for me to say that neither of us are are providing an Aurora House view today, but speaking in a personal capacity. Um, Dieter's Chair of the Natural Capital Committee, and has provided extensive advice to UK and European governments on on many issues, um, but including the cost of energy review in 2017 for the UK government um, and in developing the European Commission's energy roadmap to 2030. Somehow, Dieter also finds the time to write uh, many books as well and has produced uh, a number of books, including Burnout, The Endgame for Fossil Fuels, The Carbon Crunch, Um, And on the natural capital theme, a book on natural capital valuing the planet, another on a green and prosperous land. In today's session, we'll be discussing Dieter's new book entitled Net Zero, How Can We Stop Causing Climate Change? Which provides a critique of the current approach to climate policy, as well as suggesting alternatives as well. So Dieter, just to kick things off and get straight into it, um, why did you write this book? What was your motivation? Well, I I thought I'd uh, finished with writing about climate change, uh, and um, it was the publication in 2019 of the Climate Change Committee's advice on uh, net zero uh, as a target uh, to the government, which subsequently went into the Climate Change Act Amendment. And in that document, right at the beginning, there's a statement which goes along the lines of, when we get to zero, we will no longer be causing climate change. And this made me actually quite angry, because not only is it fundamentally wrong, but it cuts across the efforts that people think they're making, because people signed up for net zero on the grounds that they thought that the result would be that they would no longer themselves be contributing to global warming. And what's, of course, wrong with the statement is, first of all, we'll never get to zero, nor should we. It's net zero, not zero. But secondly, that um, it's uh, 
domestic, national, unilateral carbon production target. Uh, and if we were to reduce carbon production uh, to zero or net zero, we would uh, still presumably be trading. And what we would be in great danger of doing is simply increasing our carbon consumption from more polluting countries uh, instead of producing the stuff here domestically. So in a way, you're you're highlighting in a, a very important it's a sort of definitional issue there, Dieter, around how we measure and report carbon. And it's the difference. I think what you're saying is it's the difference between the way we've been looking at emissions in terms of our domestic uh, territorial uh, production of emissions within our country. Whereas you're saying, actually, what we need to do is think about our carbon footprint, including the, the goods we consume and, and import as well. Yeah, there are, there are two ways of, uh, of getting at this. One is to uh, think about it personally. You know, and I, I suggest in the book that, you, you know, you write a carbon diary and write down all the stuff that you consume in a day uh, and try and have a hazard of a guess of how much carbon's in it. And you'll discover that a huge amount of that, it depends upon stuff that's involved in world trade and not just domestic stuff. And the other uh, way of thinking about this, and it's a very pertinent example, was that when the Climate Change Committee was advising on uh, the net zero target, at the same time, there was a debate about whether British steel was about to collapse and close. And of course, it's pretty obvious, you know, if you just want to do net zero carbon production, then close British steel, hope, hope it goes down the tubes and import the steel from China instead. And hey, you'll look better. But actually, global warming will be worse because steel in China involves more pollution than steel production in the UK. And of course, there's all that transport to get it here as well. So either thinking about it personally and ultimately ethically, or thinking about it just from the industrial production mix. You can see why in the last 30 years, where Europe and the UK have been, quote, leaders in climate change, that huge efforts have been made, but actually every single year since 1990, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere has gone up about two parts per million. In other words, we've wasted 30 years it's been the 30 years in which Europe and the UK has basically switched from manufacturing and industrial processes to services. And we've had on the other side of that, the, the flip side of it, the huge industrialization and carbon intensive energy uh, related exports from China. So I suppose, Dieter, that, that's a really helpful explanation of your motivation for the book. And, and in reading the first few chapters, as I've been doing over the last few weeks, I, I was kind of struck with um, the first few chapters focus very much on your sense of what's wrong with the current approach to climate policy. And I guess from your your jumping off point there is that we're sort of we're measuring the the wrong thing in the first place uh, by looking at the production side rather than our carbon footprint. But is that the main area where you think it's gone wrong or were there other um, reasons for the failure of climate policy in, in the last three decades? Well, there have been lots of um, uh, reasons, uh, multi multiple causes of the fact that emissions have just kept going up uh, year by year. And, and I keep coming back to this, the only measure of, uh, if you're interested in climate change that matters, is the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere. And that has been yeah. marching up 
linearly are actually slightly more than linearly since 1990. So we've achieved virtually nothing over the period. We've done nothing to halt the process of increasing that carbon uh, uh, concentration in the atmosphere. So, you know, lots of reasons for doing that. Um, one is that we haven't really done very much. You know, actually, uh, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Eastern European uh, old rust belt type industries, uh, the deindustrialization of Europe have made the process pretty easy. Um, some, some good things have been done, like gradually getting out of coal, though Germany's built 13 gigawatts of coal since, nine, since 2000. Uh, and of course, there's plenty of coal in Eastern Europe. But the big story in that 30 years is the phenomenal growth of China. Yeah. It's now half the total world coal trade. It's currently building, although you know you have to use satellite data to try to get at this, but estimated it's building about 140, 150 gigawatts of new coal, and that's not far short of the total installed coal in Europe. And you know, if you care about climate change, which I do passionately, you know, it doesn't get us very far to close coal in Europe and increase coal burn in China. In fact, it probably makes things marginally worse. So I want a carbon policy which allows us, if we really want to do this, to be able to unilaterally claim, if it's a unilateral policy, that we have not caused any more climate change by our policies. And I want a policy which encourages other people to do likewise. And my carbon border adjustment does precisely that. So let's come on to the sort of policy prescriptions um, in just a moment. But to, to just pick, um, I'm just it's still interested in the historical look um, at a couple of um, some of the flagship um, policies within Europe, um, and just to get your views on those. So I suppose we could talk about the European Emissions Trading Scheme, um, whether you think that has been a success or a failure, or indeed the German Energiewender and the overall sort of national plan for decarbonisation in, in Germany. Do you see these as a, a success or failure and why? So um, if, if we look at what Europe has done by way of policy, um, the EU ETS has the merit of at least recognising that a carbon price is a necessary condition, not sufficient, but necessary condition for any credible decarbonisation strategy. The trouble with the EU ETS was that in the first phases, it produced a low, volatile and short-term price. So in its early years, it made no difference to investments within Europe. Worse, because the renewables were outside the EU ETS, uh, essentially it enabled the uh, coal burn within Europe, and especially Germany, to hold up because the emissions reductions within the frame of the overall target were being achieved outside the system. So if you look at Germany, which is, um, I think, uh, an example of exactly how you shouldn't go about decarbonisation, Germany uh, uh, essentially uh, closed, or nearly completed the full closure of its uh, baseload low carbon generation, which is nuclear, um, and replaced it not by going from nuclear to renewables, but by going 
going from nuclear to coal. And uh, that's the 13 gigawatts of uh, new coal built on the system. And if you contrast that with the UK, so the good thing the UK has done is effectively closed its coal industry, yeah. closed its coal generation. We have gone in the opposite direction of Germany. Germany isn't even uh, proposing to close its coal generation until the late 230s. That's a terrible position to get to. Now, on top of that, Germany, of course, did invest enormously in first generation, in brackets, expensive renewables, uh, and the solar uh, project uh, is stands out as a clear big ticket policy item within the European frame. But let's ask ourselves what happened there. So Germany thought uh, that building the solar would be part and parcel of a great new industrial uh, policy for Germany and create new global uh, German industrial competitive companies in this space. Why? Because when it set about the energy vendor, its political leaders, indeed the consensus in Germany was all about peak oil and how the oil and gas price was going to go up continuously, eventually to something like 200 uh, 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 dollars a barrel of oil equivalent. And uh, of course, what the Germans thought was while the George W. Bush and the Americans were foolishly pursuing shale, they were going to end up with incredibly expensive energy in uh, uh, America. And indeed, the American economy would be faced with the uncompetitiveness of fossil fuels, whereas Europe would have admittedly expensive renewables, but these would be cheaper than the rising price of oil. Turned out to be utter nonsense. Now the rationale is, oh, well, Germany did it in order to encourage China to develop mass production of solar panels, which would drive down the price of solar panels. Some of that's true. It, and China did in the process wipe out US and European solar companies. But nobody believed that the energy vendor was launched in order to benefit Chinese manufacturing production, which is what happened. So if you look at Germany, don't go there, don't start there. And whether or not you want to build new nuclear power stations, closing your existing well-regulated ones, especially in the south and around the Munich area, without building the transmission for the renewables, and meanwhile being surrounded by nuclear power stations in France and close to its border, so you didn't get uh, away from the, quote, risk of nuclear power, this was, a, this was not a good way to go about it. And uh, so I don't think that European policy was uh, at all well-designed. I don't think the UETS was well-designed. And as an aside, one of the few advantages from Brexit is that the UK can now seriously get on with a carbon tax, which is what the EU proposed in the first place back in 1991, and I was deeply involved in that. Now what they're doing is doctoring the EU ETS to try and produce the price that a carbon tax would have produced anyway. And, um, uh, you know, it's a long discussion, but um, uh, the inefficiencies of trying to make an EU ETS system doctored to produce what a carbon tax would have produced is hardly an efficient way forward. Well, just on the topic of, of carbon pricing, and then we'll move on to, to talk about sort of policy prescriptions more broadly. I suppose on, in carbon pricing, there's a very immediate concern in, in my mind and that of many players in GB, which is 
what actually will be the carbon price on the 1st of January once we've left, left um, Europe. Um, there's been a number of things thrown around, whether we have a UK standalone ETS scheme or linked scheme or, or some form of carbon tax. What, what would you be recommending to the government, Dieter? What would you like to see put in place? Well, I have recommended uh, in the Treasury paper option three, which is a carbon tax. Okay, but um, your precise question is what will the carbon price be on the 1st of January? Um, my guess is it'll be whatever the EU ETS price is on the 1st of January. Why? Because that's the obvious place to start a carbon tax. Yeah. Right? So the question about a carbon tax is not about what the opening price is. You know, the idea of a bunch of economists sitting around and working out the marginal costs and marginal benefits and the optimal tax and unilaterally imposing that on the 1st of January. A, they don't have the time, and B, it's a pretty hopeless exercise. Okay, so start with where you are, because that's where expectations are embedded in. It's where it goes after that. And the crucial thing to bear in mind about carbon pricing is, you know, in Aurora and the energy world, we all think about what it means for the energy sector. But remember, transport emissions are bigger than the energy sector, or at least yeah. the electricity sector in the UK. And agriculture is utterly crucial and has proportionally massively high emissions relative to its economic significance. So roughly, the numbers look like that transports well above 20% of emissions, agriculture, even if you exclude soils and the peat and go to the government's estimate of 11% of emissions, they produce 11% of emissions from 0.6% of GDP. So add in the soils and the, and the peat, et cetera, you get 15, even moving higher than that. The point about decarbonisation is that it's not purely about energy. It's about the economy as a whole in which electricity and the other bits of energy are embedded. But yeah, start with the opening price of whatever the EUTS is on that, that level, then have the flexibility to extend the pricing into these other sectors and to adjust the price through time to the carbon budgets, because remember, we have a unilateral policy, uh, which is what the Climate Change Act is, irrespective of whether we're in the EU or not, and whether we're in the EUTS or not, ours is a binding unilateral policy. And that's what counts legally, and that's what drives the policy instruments to try and find the cheapest way of achieving the emissions reductions, bearing in mind in a coronavirus and post-coronavirus world, the ability of customers to absorb the costs of choosing inefficient ways of reducing emissions is close to zero. Yeah, and I suppose the, the ability for treasuries to reduce taxes uh, in this context is also very low. Um, just also on, on, a, on a link thing, you, you mentioned the topic already, but border carbon adjustments, um, given the, the overall sort of construct of how we've done um, our targets, um, and given your your comments about the, the massive growth in emissions in China versus um, UK and needing to consider that if we want to take net zero seriously and in, in, in actually considering our, our footprint. It seems to me that the border carbon adjustments um, idea is is hugely valuable in, in actually driving through change at a global level. Um, so it's, you know, there's endless um, academic papers about this. It seems the, the commission is very much bought into the idea and the UK government even has said some uh, words that seem uh, positive in this direction but 
Do you think this will happen? Is is this a is this a something that can be done, particularly in the context of uh, of post Brexit needing to get trade deals done with the rest of the world? Can we push through uh, border carbon adjustments, or is this just too difficult? Okay, so the starting point for thinking about border adjustments, it, well, there's two bits to it. The first one is if you want to unilaterally no longer cause climate change. If that's what you and me and the British public believe we've signed up to, then you have to address the imports question. If you don't do it, you will not stop causing climate change. You will substitute domestic production for overseas production. So that's the first point. The second point is that global warming is global. (laughs) And actually, whether we like it or not, what we do here in the UK in, 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 is not going to make much difference to global warming. Okay? I mean, we don't run a British empire. We don't have a quarter of the world painted red. We're actually pretty insignificant in the total package. Climate change will get solved in China, India, Africa, primarily, perhaps Latin America too. And they'll get solved if those countries stop reducing the ability of the natural world to absorb carbon, to put it bluntly, stop cutting down the rainforests, uh, but there are many other things to go with it too, and they decarbonize their activities, including their uh, carbon exports. So one way of putting this question, Richard, is to say, look, if you don't think this can be done globally, then let's be honest, global warming isn't going to be cracked. Yeah. And let's, let's forget about decarbonizing the world because it isn't going to happen, right? You know, if you look through this century, you know, by the end of the century, the population of Nigeria will probably be bigger than the population of China, right? You know, of the new 3 billion people coming onto the planet in the rest of this century, 1 billion in China, 1 billion in India, 1 billion in Africa, roughly, right? Um, and, and so you have to do it. Now, the great thing about the carbon border adjustment is the only way you can unilaterally do stuff which will make a difference. If I impose the same carbon price at the border as I do domestically, uniform carbon price, there's no longer any discrimination in favor of importing and discrimination against domestic production. So you say to um, a ship coming in from China, loaded up with steel, arriving at, I don't know, Southampton docks or wherever steel goes to in the UK. Look, guys, you have to pay the same carbon price as steel produced in the UK. So they say, well, we don't want to pay the money to the British government. Can't we have an exemption? To which the reply is pretty obvious. Yeah, you can have an exemption certificate if you're applying the same carbon price that we're using domestically in China, then you can pay that carbon price to the Chinese government and keep the money. It's a no brainer that this mechanism enables you to generalize carbon pricing gradually and incrementally on a global basis, because that's the only way of being exempted. Now, of course, the UK is is now a small player and it's discovering in its trade negotiations just how insignificant it is. But think about the relationship between the United States and China. And those who think that the relationship between China and the United States is going to get better if Biden beats Trump or Trump gets re-elected, it won't make much difference. Fundamentally, think about 
the, the American economy applying a carbon border adjustment makes a hell of a lot of sense from America's geopolitical ambitions and from its trade ambitions to stop the distortion against American deep, heavy industrial manufacturing in favor of offshoring it to China. It rebalances that. And if the US implies a, a carbon border adjustment, you can be pretty sure that the Chinese would have to respond. Absolutely. So that's what gives me grounds for optimism. It's incremental. And the other side of that, which I'm very clear on the book, and I've been clear in my previous books, I just don't believe that Paris and COP26 are going to crack it. I don't think. I mean, I'm very happy for George Orr. It's great to have negotiations and for everyone to discuss these things. But they haven't worked for the last 30 years. And there's no evidence whatsoever that Paris is working either. Um, and that's why I look for a bottom-up practical policy incrementally to get an, a, a, a gradual globalization of carbon pricing to address global warming. Now, I would agree with a lot of what you said, and particularly, uh, in a sense, the, the border carbon adjustment could be one, the, the sort of policy, if any, on the climate side that the likes of Trump could sign up to, um, more from a protectionist uh, narrative than, than the climate outcome um, in of itself. I'm keen to move on. Um, you talk a, a lot in the book um, about carbon pricing, but you also talk about how to ensure we're putting net zero consistent infrastructure in place. And you talk in particular about transport and the power sector um, as two uh, examples of this. Um, so maybe um, in the interest of time, we'll dig on the on the transport side in particular. How It, it seems to me that we've made a lot less progress in decarbonising transport that we've, um, than we've made in power. That's, um, that's what the, the numbers um, support. And although we have in front of us uh, a solution to part of it, at least in the form of electric cars, um, there are challenges around that um, in, in terms of having sufficient generation capacity to, to power all the cars, having enough network capacity to get all the power to the cars, um, and thinking beyond cars to heavier duty forms of transport, trucks and ships and planes um, and so on. But w- what are the solutions that you come to in your mind, Dieter, around how to really make progress on the on the transport side? So so in, in, in my book, I've basically got three boxes of policy. One is about carbon pricing. And I defy anyone to tell me how you can decarbonize without having carbon pricing as a necessary condition. The other two boxes are infrastructure, which I do not believe markets deliver optimally, and uh, at least design and provide for optimally. They can build it, of course. Um, And then there's R&D. So in the infrastructure box, transport figures very heavily. There's no way that we're gonna get to a efficient, cost-efficient, fast, fastly rolled out electrification of transport without a plan to do it and uh, a coordination of that plan to deliver the outcome. That in everything from the charging points, the ability of householders to, to do the charging, to the industrial sites, the office car park sites, and the electricity network to back it up. Now, what we've got going on is a free-for-all in which everyone's having a pump. So we have no uh, consistency of batteries. 
So you can't do battery swapping, for example, instead of uh, sitting there with a charger plugged in while you spend ages at a motorway service station. Of course, if you're a motorway service station, you love the idea of people spending more time there. It's like having more people spending time in an airport so they can spend additional monies. Um, and we have no real plan which makes the charging network providers, the, the, the actual installations, etc., join up with the national grid and the distribution of companies to make sure this is integrated. And integrated not just in respect of transport, but in respect of the other things that need to be electrified at the same time. So think about how do you charge your car at home? It's not just about whether you can plug in your car and charge it overnight. It's about how your house can be electrified so that you might use the renewables you might generate on the roof. You might want to electrify the heating. You might want to put in air conditioning. There's a whole stack of stuff. And what you need is an integrated household solution as part of the overall infrastructure. That's why I'm in favor of system plans, not in the sort of Stalinist form, but an overall plan for the electrification infrastructure for transport and houses. And that's why within that framework, I'm keen on system regulation and regional system operators and national system operators playing a crucial role in that frame. On that question of networks, it seems to me that there's quite a lot of debate going on between Ofgem and the network companies about this, this whole question of, uh, of the next price controls, which could be quite important in getting some of the necessary infrastructure in place. There seems to be a difficulty that in the last price control period, we saw network companies make what was seen as high levels of return. And Ofgem is now reacting to that and really turning the screws on the network companies in my mind, almost precisely at the time when we probably need them to do more in the way of um, proactive investment to get things ready for this net zero transition. Would you agree with that, Dieter? Or how, what's your view on that topic? I mean, I think that the, the, the periodic review approach to networks and network price caps has had its day. And I set out in the cost of energy review how to replace it. It just isn't sensible to start with the answer, RPI minus whatever, and then fix it for five years and ask the company, so what can you do for that money? And try to yeah. use squeezing the cost of capital and uh, assumptions about efficiency gains to try to make up the old, to make the, the bargain add up. And you know, what's really happened in electricity, it's happening in water too, actually, is that the privatization deal was that basically the efficiency savings from privatization will be so great that they could absorb additional capex not paid for by customers and if there's any left over they could borrow uh, on their balance sheets and then make future customers the next generation pay the costs and we've run out of road for that we've had massive financial engineering the cost of capital is on the floor and we thrash the efficiency savings pretty hard and this produces an impossible outcome in which we're trying to work out what kind of grid, what kind of networks we want from now to 230 to 240 to 250, including how to support the electric electrification of transport on a five-year period review basis. It doesn't work, it won't work. Now there is a further difficulty to this, which people haven't noticed, which I think is gonna become apparent. Customers can't afford to pay anymore, and that's, that's something off-gem understands very clearly and it has to look after customer interests. 
And it tells you that if, like me, you believe that decarbonisation is going to be costly but necessary, then the marginal extra costs of the capex are going to have to come from the state rather than the customers, from the taxpayer rather than the customers, and from the government's balance sheet. And what that tells you is the role of the state in these infrastructures is going to become implicitly bigger and bigger. And that means explicitly the state will want to have its pound of flesh. And that's a big transition point from the 30 years of post-privatization, which will turn out to be a luxury era of financial engineering and making future generations pay and trying to use some of the efficiency savings to disguise the extra investment. It's all over for this form of network regulation. And what we're seeing going on at the moment is just a great reflection of just why this will not work. Now, that's interesting. You, you talk about the, the state intervention, the role of the state. I, and I guess I'm left wondering, as a final question, final thought, um, how that works now in a, in a post-COVID environment in which... Um, the attitude towards government intervention may have changed. The fiscal position certainly has changed. Um, how do you think that plays out? What, will, do you think we'll see yet more government involvement or does the government need to find a way um, to retreat from this and, and get more of it done um, using market economics? How does, how does COVID impacted all of, all of what we've said? Well, as a prediction, I don't think that we should be interested in the question about whether the government's going to be more involved. Uh, prediction is about the degree, uh, how much more involved. Mm. If you take the conservative uh, policies as unfolded and set them next to Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto at the last election, it's pretty remarkable how far, how much of Corbyn's agenda has now been done by the conservatives. And much of it was being done before the coronavirus really took a hold. So everything from national infrastructure, uh, banks to uh, industrial spending across the pitch on taxation, um, on uh, intervention labour markets, on energy efficiency. You know, anyone who thinks that we're about to return to the kind of Thatcherite uh, policy framework um, once this episode's over, I just think is, um, well living on another planet um, and I certainly wouldn't be trying to work out how to run my business thinking the government's going to be less of a client than uh, it, 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 more less of a customer than it is today I mean you know EMR started the game in which virtually every investment in the electricity sector was a, 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 a contract essentially with government underpinning the FITs and then the CFDs and so on going forward and then the capacity contracts. We've long breached the, the link between our customer and the investments taking place. And as I say, if you're on an average household income uh, in Britain now, coronavirus has just made your financial position even worse than it previously was. Average wages haven't been going up very much. Uh, borrowing has been very high. These people can't afford to pay anymore. And that's what the period review essentially brings to, to the surface. The customers can't pay. And therefore, if we are going to do decarbonisation, which I think is essential, and it's a legal requirement to do it, 
then the government will have to do it. And the government isn't in the game of giving away money without having greater control of the outcome. And several years ago, I wrote a paper called The CGB is Back, right? Not in its formal structure, but what I'm interested in is how to keep the room for markets and competition open and at the same time have a credible plan for net zero. And the way to do that is through the system regulatory model and the system plans and the auctions like in the uh, capacity auction, although in the cost of energy review, I, of course, wanted to have an integrated auction with greater depth and liquidity. And that was the equivalent fund power auction. But that's the kind of ways in which we have to go. But pretending the government's going to retreat again. Well, you know, do enjoy your alternative planet. <laughs> Excellent. And on that note, I think we will wrap up there. We could probably talk for hours about this, Dieter. And there are many, many topics that we uh, didn't manage to cover, but maybe for another day. Thanks again for appearing on the podcast, and I hope it all goes well with the book launch. Well, thank you very much, Richard, and thank you for your excellent questions. That was Richard Howard, Aurora's Research Director, speaking to Dieter Helm, Professor of Economic Policy at the University of Oxford. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.